couple of things uh, as we get started. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Revelation 19. Two things. One, if you're somebody who was disappointed and disconnected, I'd encourage you to reach out. You can, if you're, uh, you can reach out to Matt, to Kim, Jeremy, uh, Katie, if you're a child or student ministry. Uh, just reach out, let us know, so we can continue to be praying for you. We're happy to talk with you about anything that's going on as well. Also, uh, we're going we're gonna to try. It's tentative. We'll see. We're going to try to do some kind of farewell services the week of the 18th. So that's next Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. We're going to try to do three a day. Let me look at the times. Nine, one, and seven. The big thing we need from you is you have to, have to, have to sign up. If you show up and you don't sign up, we're going to have to send you home. We have to do all of the social distancing and all that stuff. So we have a limited number of slots. So we need you to sign up. If somehow or all nine of those services get filled, then we'll add some more. Um, but we do need you to sign up. And everybody who's coming, babies, everybody in your family that's coming, we need you to sign up because we have limited number of spaces uh, that we can, uh, th we have just a limited number of spaces and we want to make sure that we're not overcrowding. Uh, we'll put some more details about those services in the newsletter that Kim sends out, uh, sends out, but I want you to hear from me. You got to sign up. Those signups are online on our event registration tab and uh, you can go ahead and look at that and put your name down. Okay. Revelation 19. So Babylon has fallen. We saw that last week. There were two groups that reacted to the fall of Babylon. There were those who mourned. That was everyone who was connected to her, who benefited from that relationship, people who got rich or maybe their status was elevated in some way. And there are people who rejoiced. And the people who rejoiced uh, were all those who were aligned with God, all those who were aligned with Jesus, because Babylon is the great prostitute. She actively is seeking to seduce God's people uh, into unfaithfulness. Uh, we were also introduced to a new person and to a new uh, scene, a new event, the bride of Christ, dressed in fine linen, bright and clean, and then the wedding supper of the Lamb. We were introduced to that as well. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in the coming weeks. Uh, what well, just, yeah, we'll just, uh, we're going to wait. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. Let's jump right into Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with the beast, the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. 
With these signs, the false prophet had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshiped the image of the beast. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. This is a perfect thing to read for Mother's Day. So, uh, Jewish wedding, two elements. The bride gets ready, the groom goes to the bride's house to get her, and he brings her back to his house for the wedding feast. So last week we saw that. The bride is ready. She's dressed, fine linen, clean and white. When we hear that the, the invitations for the wedding feast have been sent. So that makes us think, well, this thing is ready. So what we're thinking is the groom is now going to come and get the bride. That's what we're thinking is going to happen. And what we see appears to be really different. These are not normal kind of wedding day activities for most of us. It, Jesus returns, but he returns and he judges all of those who are opposed to him. He wages war. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. None of that sounds wedding day-ish for most of us, but that's what we see here. Jesus does return. Uh, keep in mind, Revelation is a vision. It's 100% true, but it's not literal. And so I, I wouldn't want to press these details too, too much. I'm not really looking for a, an actual military-style battle. I don't even know what that looks like when one of the opponents is omnipotent. I don't know that Jesus literally is going to have a sword coming out of his mouth. What we want to focus on is what's the truth that's being communicated through these images. And I see a couple of things about Jesus. One is we see him, uh, we see his authority over the nations of the earth. You'll see the bullet points on the slide on the screen. I'm not going to go through all of those right now, but that's one of the ways he's described. It, we, we recognize he really, he, he's worthy uh, to judge the nations of the earth because he is the king of all the kings. And he's the Lord of all the lords. And that's the second thing is Jesus is the executor of the judgments of the Father. He's faithful and just. And one of the things that we've seen throughout Revelation is that the Father's judgments are faithful and just. That he's, he, he's judging righteously. He's paying back those who oppose him uh, based on what they've done. That people have sown rebellion. They've sown resistance. They've sown wickedness. And they're reaping judgment. For that, And that's what we see here in Revelation 19. Again, we can kind of get lost in some of the terminology and some of the imagery, but I think those are the key ideas. Jesus rules over the nations of the earth, and Jesus is executing the judgments of the Father on the earth, and he's worthy to do that. Again, because he's the king and he's the Lord, and also because he's the one they've rejected. The reason they're being judged fundamentally is because they've rejected Jesus and his kingship. And this is the result of that rejection. His second coming, obviously very different from his first coming. This is not a baby in a manger and you need eyes of faith to recognize him as the king and the son of God. This is public, all can see. Uh, this is from Revelation 6. It'll be on your screen as well, describing this day. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, Everyone else, both slave and free, that, that sounds a whole lot like the group that we just were reading about. All of those guys hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us 
from the face of him who sits on the throne, that's the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? That's what's going on here. Jesus is returning, and he's returning to judge. He's, he's returning to execute the just judgments of the Father on all of those who have opposed him. That plays out in the battle of Armageddon. We were introduced to that in Revelation 16, the sixth bowl. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs, and they came out of the mouths of the dragon. Remember, that Satan. Out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Then Jesus says, look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they, all those kings of the earth, gathered the kings together, excuse me, those three spirits, they gathered the kings together to, uh, in the place in Hebrew. It's called Armageddon. So that's, that's the, the setup. That's the beginning of this battle of Armageddon. And then we see the conclusion in chapter 19, somewhat anticlimactic. We don't see a whole lot of fighting. Jesus just comes back and with his word, he defeats everyone who's opposed to him. The battle of Armageddon, we see it's also known as the great feast or the great supper of God. Deliberate contrast to the wedding feast of the lamb. And we've seen in Revelation over and over again, there's a binary choice for us. You're either a guest of the wedding feast or you're dinner at the great supper of God. Those are your two choices. You're either a guest of the wedding feast or your supper at this great feast of God. Those are your two options. And again, don't press the imagery too much there in terms of it's, it, it's gory. I, I would, again, I would say don't press that, the truth behind that. All of those who oppose Jesus are going to be judged by him and they're going to get what they deserve. They're going to reap what they have sown. Uh, it's interesting to me that Jesus' return is, is public. We just read that from the sixth seal. Everyone's going to see and they're going to mourn. They're going to hide in caves because they recognize what it means for them, all of those who are opposed to Jesus, those who are not following him. But then Jesus says in chapter 16, I come like a thief. So even though his coming will be public, it's still going to be unexpected. And we'll circle back to that in a second. Uh, chapter 19 closes with the judgment of the beast and the judgment of the false prophet. We'll see what happens to Satan, the dragon, next week. For now, we see the judgment of the beast and the judgment of the false prophet. So if you're one of, a member of one of those seven churches in Turkey, that, that original audience that heard Revelation for the first time when it's being read in your little house church with a dozen or two dozen fellow believers, you're this really small minority, you've got no political power, you've got no cultural influence in the broader Roman Empire. This is what you've just heard. You've heard that Babylon has fallen, and that's the city of Rome with all of its wealth and all of its immorality and all of its influence. You just read that the beast was thrown into hell. That's what the burning lake of sulfur is. We would say that's hell. And so the beast has been thrown into hell. And so Roman political and military power overthrown. False prophet thrown into hell. That's the, the, the worship of the emperor. All of the temples that have been set up throughout the empire where you have to go in and burn your pinch of incense and say, 
uh, Domitian is Lord. That whole system has also been overthrown. And you're hearing that in 94, 95, 96, 97 AD when the Roman Empire is at its height. Uh, it's got, th- there are no rivals on the scene. It, it is the biggest bully in the world and there's nobody even close to being number two. And you're hearing all of that is going to be overthrown. So if you're in that small house church, huddled together with your 12 or 20 or whatever it looks like, brothers and sisters, and you're remaining faithful to Jesus and you're being persecuted because of that, incredibly encouraging for you to hear all of these guys, Babylon, the beast, the false prophet, Rome, the Roman, this, the whole Roman Empire, it's all going to be overthrown. Comforting, encouraging, strengthening. If you're part of that church and maybe you've been tempted to just drop, go by the temple and burn the incense and maybe keep your fingers crossed behind your back to say, I didn't really mean it. Maybe you've been tempted by the city of Rome, by its culture, by all of the wealth, by the power, by the status. And maybe you're thinking, man, if I could just connect to that, it'd be really good for my business. I could help so many other people. If you're being tempted in those ways and you hear Babylon falls and the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, that serves as a warning to you not to align yourself with those as powerful as they look and as powerful as they are in that day and in your day, you're being told it's not going to last. And all of those who align themselves with them, they become dinner at that great supper of God. And you don't want that to be you. You want to remain faithful to them. There are places right now in the world that are living in these conditions. You can go to opendoorsusa.org.org and click on the tab that says World Watch List. And they list the 50 most difficult places for Christians to live right now. And you'll see as you read through those 50 places, there's some themes. One of those themes is a communist government. Not all of them, but that's one of the themes. And a, for a, a communist government, they say that there is no God except the state, and you've got to worship us. And you can see how that could become kind of beast and false prophet-like and how comforting these words would be to them. Another theme you may see are some Muslim countries. If you've got a, a Muslim government who's saying there's no God but Allah and they have a radical interpretation of Sharia law and to, to follow Jesus is not just blasphemy, it's also treason, you can see how that quickly could become a beast and false prophet type scenario for them as well and how comforting Revelation 18 and 19 would be for them. We've said before, that's not where we're living in the U.S. We're not living under the conditions that are being described in Revelation. I think we're absolutely tempted by Babylon. We're we're allured by money and sex and power. But our government is not setting itself up as God. Our government is not saying, worship me. And, And there's no threat of persecution for those who would refuse that and would continue to remain faithful to Jesus. For us, I think when, I, when I'm reading Revelation 18 and 19, kind of what I pull away, again, it's just a warning to me and maybe to you as well, just to be aware of my allegiance, to be aware of my loyalties, and, and to be really careful about anything that would begin to subtly pull me away from faithfulness to Jesus. We see in Revelation the consequences of that are so severe, and the rewards for remaining faithful are sure and trustworthy. And you can count on them. 
So I was thinking about this and, and again, trying to think through some, some application points for us. We're expecting Jesus to come back for the bride and he comes back for war. And it's actually, it's just two sides of the same coin. For those who are aligned with him, his return will be, a, it'll, be a, it'll be the best day, not just a great day. It'll be the best day. It's a day of vindication. It's a day of rescue. It's a day of reward. For those who are opposed to him, that exact same event will be a day of great dread. It's what we just read. It's judgment, it's wrath, and it's hell, literally. That, that, and, and the only difference is, what's your relationship with Jesus? For those who are aligned with him, his return, it'll be like the groom coming to the bride's house and taking her back for a wedding feast. For those who are opposed to him, who are resistant to him, remember in Revelation, everything's binary. It's either or. There is no gray. You're one or the other. And for all those who are opposed to him, who are resistant to him, then by default, you've aligned yourself with the beast. You've aligned yourself with the false prophet. You've aligned yourself with the dragon, with Satan, and his return for you, it's going, to be your, it's going to be your funeral. It's going to the great supper of God where you're going to be destroyed. It's, it's stark, but that's the picture that Revelation paints for us. So are there things that we can be doing now so that we welcome Jesus' return, where we're not hiding in caves saying, no, no more. Hide us from the wrath of of him who sits on the throne, hide us from the wrath of the lamb. Absolutely, there's some things that we can be doing to prepare ourselves so that we can look forward and even welcome the day of Jesus' return. There's a pretty confusing sermon Jesus gives in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. He's talking about two things at once, and he doesn't tell us which one he's talking about. So it can be a bit confusing. He's talking about the destruction of the temple, which occurred in 70 AD, way in the past, And he's talking about his return still in the future. Hasn't yet happened. So for him, when he's talking, both of those events are in the future. He's talking in 25, 26, 28, whenever it is AD. The destruction of the temple is future, but it's within a generation. And then his return is is on the other side of that. For us, reading Matthew 24 and 25, the destruction of the temple is way in our rearview mirror. And his return is kind of in the murky future. We're not really sure when. And so when you're reading Matthew 24 and 25, again, it can be difficult to try to kind of pull apart. When is Jesus talking about the fall of the temple and the, or the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem? And when is he talking about his return? And when is he talking about both? But things clear up in verse 36, where Jesus then begins to pretty clearly talk about his future return. We don't have time to read the rest of chapter 24 and all of 25. I would really encourage you to do that this week. It'll help prepare you and kind of get you in this mindset of what does it look like to live in a way that I can welcome the return of Jesus so it's not a day of dread for me. What, what are the things that I can be doing now in terms of preparing my heart? But I do want to hit a couple of key terms. You'll see them there on the screen. Verse 42, therefore keep watch because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. Keep watch. It's exactly what you think it means. Be alert. Be aware. Uh, The the opposite of keep watch is is kind of falling asleep on the job. You get that picture there. We want to be alert so that we're not overtaken, so that we're not surprised by Jesus' return. Verse 44, so you must also be ready, because you don't know 
when the Son of Man will return. That's the whole idea of he comes like a thief. We want to keep watch. We want to be ready. That is, we want to be prepared for his return. But even those two words, keep watch and be ready, not super helpful to us. They're not very concrete. Am I supposed to sit on my roof and look up at the sky and wait on it to open up and Jesus on a white horse, whatever that happens to mean? Am I supposed to stock up a bunch of canned goods and military gear for the battle of Armageddon? Like what's, what does it mean to keep watch and to be ready? Jesus gives us two parables and he tells us what those two parables are going to be about in verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants of their household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant, that faithful and wise servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Those two words, those, those adjectives, faithful and wise, that's what we want to grab on to. Faithful and wise servants are those who keep watch and are ready. If we want to know what does it mean to keep watch and be ready, it means to be a faithful and a wise servant. And then Jesus gives a parable about each one of those words in Matthew 25. For the word wise, he gives the parable of the ten virgins, or your Bible may say the ten uh, bridesmaids. And for the faithful, he gives the parable of the talents, or your Bible may say the parable of the bags of gold. We don't have time to read both of those parables. I want you to read them this week, though. I'm just going to summarize them real briefly. Wise. That word is used in uh, that parable of the virgins. Who are, there's five who are wise, same word, and there are five who are foolish. So it, it's the scene that we've been talking about. It's, it's a wedding day. The groom has gone to the bride's house to get her, and she's ready. And they're going to come back to the groom's house for the banquet. You have these 10 bridesmaids, and they have torches. Remember, no street lights, no flashlights, no headlights. Their job is to light the way for the groom, the bride, and the, the bridal party that is with them. It's 100% guaranteed they're coming back tonight, but they don't know when they're coming back. And again, no cell phones, so there's no way of calling and saying, hey, we're on the way. So these five wise bridesmaids, they have enough oil to last. Five foolish don't. And so when the bridegroom comes with the bride and with the wedding party, the five foolish bridesmaids, they don't have enough oil. They've already used it. And so they've got to run to town to get more. And when they get back, the door's been closed. The party's already started and they're left on the outside. The five who are wise came prepared. They had enough for, to, to, to wait. They had enough to, oil to last. If you don't know exactly when the bridegroom is returning then the wise thing to do is to be prepared for the worst case scenario. To be prepared, I got enough oil to get me through the night. Maybe he comes early and then worst thing that happens, I've, I've got some extra oil. But maybe for whatever reason, they get hung up and it's gonna be a little bit later than I thought. My job is to light the way and that's my desire. I wanna celebrate this wedding. And so you, you bring enough oil to last you all the way through the night. What's the parallel for us? I, I think about marriage. All of you have been to a, a wedding ceremony and you've heard a bride and a groom say, you know, till death do us part. That's a strong commitment with a nebulous end date. We don't know when we're making that commitment when it's going to end. We don't know when death is going to part us. So with full honesty and integrity, we're saying yes I'm vowing, I'm pledging, I'm in until death parts us, not knowing when that is. Some of us are finish line oriented people. It's helpful for us to know, it's helpful for us to, to see the whole race course. 
then we can pace ourselves or whatever that looks like for us. You don't get that in a marriage. You just pledged until death parts you, and you don't know if that's going to be 10 years or 20 years or 73 years. You're just in. And if you're a finish line-oriented person, it can, that can be difficult. And the same thing is true in terms of our relationship with Jesus. We've pledged to be faithful to him until either we die or he returns. And we don't know what, that there's no date on the calendar that we know for either of those. God may know, but we don't know. And so, again, it's this, it's this open-ended commitment that we've made, and it can be easy over time to lose sight of that commitment. It can be really easy over time to, again, because we can't see the finish line, we don't know how close we are. And so it can be really easy for us to start drifting off course. It can be really easy for us to start slowing down and looking around. In marriage, uh, you may have heard, maybe in your premarital counseling or something, they talk about the three-legged stool, commitment, intimacy, and passion. You need all three of those things to really have a strong and healthy marriage. You can apply that to your relationship with Jesus. Commitment, you understand what that is. Intimacy, it's your connection to him. Passion, that's kind of the emotional side of it. Those are the, the goosebumps that you feel. That's the it's the feeling part of your relationship with Jesus. And all three of those things are important. To me, when I'm thinking about having enough oil, practically what that means for me, it's not trying to predict when Jesus is, come, is coming back so that I can figure out how to hunker down and be faithful to the end. For me, it looks like being really focused today on my relationship today. Trying commitment, intimacy, passion. Investing in my relationship with him today not worried about whether today is the last day or the seventh from the last day or the 10,000th from the last day. It doesn't matter. If I'm invested in the relationship now, then I'm keeping watch and I'll be ready. Same thing with your marriage. It applies to your relationship with Jesus. So the wise one, the one who has enough oil to me, is the one who's investing relationally on a daily basis who's consistently engaged with Jesus. So then the, 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 the date doesn't matter. The date of his return, in a sense, becomes irrelevant because you're spending so much time with him on a daily basis, investing so significantly in your relationship with him that by default, you are ready. Parable of the talents, parable of the bags of gold, the word faithful is used in that parable. So you've got a guy who's loaded, who gives three of his servants money. He gives them three different amounts of money. He's gone for a long period of time. He comes back to settle up with them. Two of the servants have doubled their money, and one of the servants has buried his money. The two who doubled their money are said to be, uh, they're rewarded. He says, well done to them, good and faithful servants. You've been faithful with a few things. Come enjoy your master's happiness. That's what he says to them. To the guy who's wasted the one or buried the one. He calls him wicked. He calls him lazy and he casts them out, throws them out. The same result as what happened with these five unprepared or foolish bridesmaids. They're kept out of the wedding feast. This wicked and lazy servant is kicked out of the master's household. Strong response. The difference between the faithful and the unfaithful or the faithful and the wicked, the faithful and the lazy the faithful were good stewards. They, they recognized the master's given us money 
And so our job is to use the money in a way that honors him. So they invest it. And in the parable, they double their money, five to 10, two to four. You'll notice there it's different amounts. So it's not about whether, how much you've been given compared to somebody else. That's not what this parable is about at all. It's just the process of investing. It's recognizing everything that I have is a gift from God. My time, that's a big one for us. The 24 hours that I get, the seven days that I get, the 365 days that I, whatever that is, the years that I have, they're all of those things. That time, it's a gift to me from God. And he's going to ask me, well, what, what, did, what did you do with it? And he's not going to ask in this harsh way. I think he's going to ask in an expected way. I gave you all that time. What, what'd you do? Let's see. It's kind of like for those of you who are parents, when your kids come home, like maybe they've been at camp and you say, hey, what'd you do? You're not, you're not asking them necessarily for an itinerary. Tell me what you did every minute. You're kind of saying, what'd you do? I, I sent you on this camp. I sent you to this camp. And I just want to know how it was and what'd you do and what'd you learn and who you met. And I think that's how the father is going to be approaching us. What'd you do? I gave you this much money. Most of us can't, we, we don't necessarily add up what we get. But for many of us, it's going to be millions of dollars over the course of our lives. Not at one time, but over the course of our lives. That's what we've been given. And he's going to say, what, what did you do with it? Like, again, excited, not accountant. What did you do with it? What did you do with the strengths that I gave you? What did you do with the gifts? What did you do with the opportunities? What did you do with the relationships? Again, not, not looking to greatest, but I think from a place of expectancy. I gave you all of these good things. How did you use them? And in that moment, we'll have a chance. And again, I don't think it'll be us trying to prove ourselves or justify ourselves. My, my hope is it's, it's just us sharing. This, I did the best I could. And this is what that looked like. Some things turned out and some things didn't turn out, but I did the best I could. I think that's all he's looking for from us. Did you do the best you could with what you've been given? Did you intentionally say, God, I recognize I'm just a steward. Everything that I have ultimately comes from you. And so I'm going to use what you've given me to the best of my abilities to bring you glory and honor and to love other people well. And sometimes it's going to work out and sometimes it's not going to work out. That, that's, been my, that's my approach. Can you hear that as an invitation to partnership, not as pressure to perform? Can you hear that as God, as we'll say like the, 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 the owner of the business, it's a family business and he's inviting you and he's inviting me to partner with him. Hey, what'd you do? What'd you do with the opportunities? What'd you do with the influence? Again, don't hear that as pressure that you've got to go out and and, you know, bring back a ledger with black on one side and red on one side, and hopefully the black is, is greater than the red. That's not it at all. God's looking for faithfulness. I think what he's, what he's saying is, do you recognize that I've given you all of these good gifts, and are you using them in a way that I would want you to use them? And some of that is absolutely using the, some of those things on yourself, 100%. That's why he's given you some of those things. But it's not always, it's not using all of them for yourself. He's given you some things in order for you to give them to other people. 
And again, whether that's money, whether that's time, whether that's gifts and talents, whatever that is, some of what he's given you is not for you, it's for others. And the only way we know that is by maintaining that relationship. The wise and the faithful tie together. You can't have one without the other. If, if the wise is, is really about the, a relational dynamic, I'm investing daily in my relationship with Jesus. I'm not trying to put a date on the calendar for when he's returning so I can get the house cleaned up and get myself cleaned up and put on a smile and, hey, I'm ready. I'm investing in him and investing in us daily. So I'm always ready in that sense. And that goes hand in hand with this faithfulness. Because I'm in spending time with him, I have a sense of how he would want me to use things. My heart's sensitive and he, he, the Holy Spirit convicts me when I'm getting a bit selfish, when I'm not really uh, looking around at other people, or when I'm beginning to live a bit independently of the Father and kind of uh, taking some liberties, doing, doing things on my own, forgetting the fact that everything that he's given me, uh, he's given me. That it's nothing, it's not mine to begin with. So I want to take a few minutes and pray. And I want you to pray with me. So uh, those two words, faithful and wise, those can push us in some bad ways. And again, we can begin to feel pressure to perform. And none of that's from the Lord. All of this is done in the context of relationship. We're saved by grace and we continue to live by grace. So I want to ask you a couple of questions and then you can just process them with the Lord. You may want to talk to somebody else about them as well. And the first question I want to ask is, if Jesus were to return today, how would that, like, would you welcome that or would you dread that? What's your gut reaction? Like, what if it's not a white horse? What if it's him knocking on the door and you open and boom, there he is? What's your response? I have a sense that for many of us, our response is we'd be embarrassed. We would think of all of the things that we haven't done or how we look. Just we'd be embarrassed. And I think that probably breaks the heart of God. That if Jesus were to return today and don't hear this as condemnation, our first thought would be about us. And not about him. Some of you, you're not ready. You're not ready for him to return. Because honestly, you wouldn't be invited to the feast. And I'd encourage you, say yes to the invitation. For those of you who said yes to the invitation, if he were to return, I wonder again how many of us would be embarrassed. And if that's you, I'd just ask you to, and encourage you just to explore that a little bit with the Lord. God, what is that? Is that just a preoccupation with me and myself? Is some of that kind of a bit of conviction? 
Like, what is that? I, I want to be in a spot where when I see you, when you return, I want to be, I want to be excited. I want to be over the moon. I want to be thinking about myself at all. I only want to be thinking about you. So would you move me in that direction? Second question, when you think about those 10 bridesmaids, which category do you put yourself in? Are you wise or are you foolish? Are you prepared for the long haul? You've made a, a, an, you've made a commitment that doesn't have a finish line. And it's a significant commitment. You've pledged to be faithful to Jesus until you die or until he returns. Again, thinking of that Jewish marriage and wedding custom, you're in the betrothal period. You've already said yes, but you haven't yet gone to the wedding feast. It's kind of like engagement time for us. Which one are you, prepared or not? And again, I would say if in your heart you're thinking, I don't know. I would encourage you just to pray something like this in your heart with the Lord. God, I want to be wise. I want to be able to stand firm to the end. I don't want to quit when things get difficult, and I also don't want to get distracted when I get bored. So God, would you help me? Would you show me how to invest in my relationship with you in a way that's life-giving? I know all the rules about the quiet time and the Bible study. I know all of that. What's most helpful for me? What are the practices that I need to be engaged in that will strengthen my relationship with you so that on any given day, I'll be ready because I'm investing regularly in our relationship. And God may bring some things to your mind for you to look into and for you to explore, for you to begin to practice. We'd love to talk with you about any of that stuff if you need some help. Last, which of those servants are you? Are you investing or are you burying what God has given you? Maybe the first question is, do you recognize that everything you have is a gift from him? That's James. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Do you recognize that and acknowledge that, not just theoretically, but practically in terms of the way you're living? Are you looking to steward what he's given you? Or are you burying it? And the way for many of us, the way that we bury what God has given us is we just use it for ourselves. It's not that we literally hide those things. We just use them for our own purposes without really any acknowledgement that those things are gifts from God. That can actually happen. I'm rambling a bit. That can actually happen a bit, even if, if you give some whether that's time or money or whatever, sometimes we inoculate ourselves to the fact that God owns everything by giving him a small portion. It's like, God, I'm going to give you this and then the rest is mine to do with as I want. And we kind of say, even if it's 10%, I'm going to give 10%, but then the 90 is mine and I don't really consult him on what to do with that. That's money, but you can think of that in across the board. And so I just encourage you to recognize everything that you've been given and all of everything that you've been given is his, ultimately. And you're just a steward. And that's not slavish. Stewards have tons of freedom 
Stewards aren't slaves. They got tons of freedom to use what's been given to them. But there's a sense in which they're always doing it with an eye towards the agenda of the master. So you may want to pray something like this. God, I want to be a good steward. I want to acknowledge every good gift that you've given me. And maybe you want to tick some of those things off in your mind. You may want to sit down and look back and see how much money you've made over the last 10 years. You'll probably be blown away. You may want to think about if you stay on the track that you're on, what does that look like over the next 10? You may want to do the math and say, how many, how many hours do you have it's for in the next 10 years? What does that look like? How many hours is that? How are you using them? You may want to think through the opportunities that you have now and over the next three months or six months or several years. Get excited about the things that the Lord has given you and begin to ask him, what does it look like for me to steward these things in a way that honors you? Again, don't hear that as pressure, but this incredible invitation. If you know yourself well and you know the areas where you're tempted to bury, tempted to just kind of take what God's given you and do what you want with it, independent of him, confess that. God, I confess that it's this for me. Like for me, I can say a lot of times it's my time. I mentioned that in that Instagram post on Friday, this prayer that I've been praying. God, I acknowledge that there's enough time in my day to do everything that you want me to do, even if there's not enough time for me to do everything that I want me to do. I acknowledge that the time that you've given me is the time that you've given me. Yours may be something different. But acknowledge that area where you can tend to live independently of him. Again, don't hear any of this as pressure, but all of this as opportunity. All of that's really rambly, so I'm just going to close this real quick. God, help us. We want to be people who are faithful and who are wise. We want to be people who look forward to your coming and who will welcome your coming with great joy not embarrassed about the state of our lives or the state of our preparedness, but overjoyed because we're keeping watch and we're ready. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys have a great week.